Well, as we get uh, ramped up for another year of ministry as a church, I was thinking about uh, a passage that uh, might uh, help us refocus as a church and, and help us renew our commitment to, to minister together. And uh, this is the time of year when we, we come out of the summer and, and things have kind of been a little quiet here uh, at the church, but we're uh, all in preparation, right, to, to launch into another year of ministry. As soon as the Labor Day hits, we're off to the races and uh, everything kicks in, our, our, our new equipping hour and uh, class, and, and then we've got our Wednesday nights back and we've got our women's ministry, our, our men's ministry, and just a myriad of other ministries kick off uh, for the year. And so hopefully we're, we're, we're getting geared up and ready to go. And so I thought we would look at a passage this morning that, again, would, would just refocus us and, and, and renew our commitment to ministry. And the passage I'm referring to is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And let me read the words of the Apostle Paul to his young son in the ministry, Timothy. He writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to, first, ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything." Father, we come to consider this text as you've commanded us to through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and we uh, seek uh, you right now that you would give us understanding uh, about what Paul was saying here and how it applies to us, particularly in this season uh, in the life of our church as we launch into another fall and and, uh, ramp up our ministries, Father, that, Lord, you would uh, help us to be refocused and renewed in our commitment as a church, Lord, to be all here and to to serve you faithfully and effectively. And so we ask that your grace would be amongst us, Lord, the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Lord, would be present amongst us today and and granting us grace, Lord, to, to understand what you would have to say to us today and to help us go out of here Uh, seeking to do what you would have us to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard that well-known saying before, I'm sure, and it conveys the idea that, that complicated concepts that require many words to explain can oftentimes be clarified by a simple image or or picture. A picture is sometimes able to communicate more plainly and profoundly than words ever can, especially when it comes to ideas and topics that maybe are unfamiliar to us or or hard for us to understand. Being able to to visualize them or being able to compare them to something that we are already familiar with helps us to grasp better uh, what, what we're talking about better than maybe just reading about it or hearing it. It helps to see it. I think one of the most difficult concepts to grasp is ministry. And by ministry, what I mean is ministering on behalf of Jesus Christ or or just simply serving Jesus Christ with your life. That's what I'm talking about. That's how we would define ministry this morning is just, just serving Jesus Christ. And typically when we think of those who are in ministry, we think of who? What do you think of guys like me, right? Pastors, uh, evangelists, or missionaries. Those are the people that are in ministry or in the ministry. But every Christian has the responsibility to faithfully serve their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in essence, we're all in ministry. Wouldn't you agree? 
And, and the primary way that we minister or serve is by ministering to the needs of others, either by sharing the gospel with unbelievers so they'll come to know Christ, or by teaching and equipping and, and discipling fellow Christians so that they'll grow in their relationship with Christ. And while that may not appear that complicated, I think the true nature of Christian ministry is often misunderstood or at least not fully comprehended. It seems to me that the average Christian uh, in churches today has a, a feeble grasp of what it means to serve Christ with their life. They've got a, a shallow, superficial understanding of all that Christ requires and expects uh, of those who claim him as their Lord and Savior. And rather than ministry playing a, a, a central role, an essential role in their lives, their involvement in ministry is, is peripheral. It's in some ways, even trivial. In other words, they get by with as little ministry as possible. They make it to church on Sunday. Maybe they even teach a Sunday school class or sing in the choir, if we had one, right? Stack the chairs, things like that. But, but beyond that, the rest of their week is consumed with themselves, meeting their own needs, pursuing their own goals, accomplishing their own personal agendas. And what many Christians, I think, fail to understand is that ministry is why we're here. When, when you became a Christian, God could have instantly zapped you and took you to heaven. He could have done that, couldn't he? But he didn't. Why? Why did he leave us here? To struggle and to suffer. And, and was it just to struggle and to suffer? No, it was to serve. It was to serve. He, he, he has work for us to do here. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're saved by grace through faith to do good works for God. God sovereignly and specifically ordained certain things for us to do, that's what we would call ministry. He's given us a ministry to do. So we all have a ministry, and therefore our lives should revolve around doing ministry. If that's why he left us here, was, was to do more than just suffer and struggle, and we've kind of talked about that the last couple of weeks, and I think those messages about trials and tribulations struck a chord with all of us, because all of us at at any given time, we're going through some kind of trial, we're suffering, we're struggling with something, whether it's a, a temptation or, or, or a trial, and, and yet we're not just here to suffer and to struggle, we're here to serve. We're here to serve. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our struggling, we should be serving the Lord. And so our marriages and our families and our jobs and our classes and our games and appointments and chores and hobbies and vacations all provide us a context for what? Ministry. These are all ministry opportunities. They, they serve as, as means for, for, for ministering to those people that God has providentially appointed for us to, to help either come to know Christ or grow in Christ. And I think this, this multi-dimensional view of ministry is lacking in the lives of a lot of Christians today. They, they, they don't view work as ministry. They don't view their family as ministry. They don't view their, their hobby as ministry. But really, all it is is a context for ministry. It just puts you in different contexts at different times in different places with different people that God wants to use you to minister to. And my heart this morning is that, that, that this vivid picture of ministry would come into focus in all of our minds and, and that ministry will become compelling and all-consuming the way that God intended it to be. So ministry is no longer just something that you do on Sundays or something that you try to squeeze into the spare moments of your life. No, that ministry would become your life. Ministry would become your life. Ministry was Paul's life, and God blessed his life and ministry. One of my favorite commentators is John Stott. 
he said this about the Apostle Paul. He said, the blessing of God rested upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul in quite exceptional measure. I think we'd all agree. Paul had a very blessed life in ministry. No doubt many explanations of this could be given, but I find myself wondering if we attribute it sufficiently to the zeal and the zest, the almost obsessional devotion with which he gave himself to the work. He gave and did not count the cost. He fought and did not heed the wounds. He toiled and did not seek for rest. He labored and asked for no reward except for the joy of doing his Lord's will. And as Paul's life came to the end, he wanted to impart this, using Stott's terminology, I love this, his obsessional devotion for ministry, he wanted to impart that, pass that along to his young disciple, Timothy. And so he wrote him a couple of letters. We know 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, written uh, to uh, Paul's disciple, uh, where he was basically pouring out his heart regarding the fundamentals for faithful, effective ministry in the local church. And in this particular passage, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul compared the ministry to four of the most common occupations in their day. A teacher, a soldier, a competitor, and a farmer. And these were all very familiar images to anyone living in that Greco-Roman culture of the first century. And we know, if you know anything about Paul's writings, he was fond of using these metaphors in his letters to describe different aspects of the Christian life. And in this particular letter, he uses these familiar pictures and images to illustrate some of the essential requirements for faithful, effective ministry, which many Christians are unfamiliar with or maybe have a hard time grasping or understanding or doing. And so here in verses 1 through 7, Paul described four metaphors for ministry, four pictures of ministry that, that help us better grasp what God requires of us as faithful, effective ministers and hopefully will motivate us to serve Him with greater zeal and devotion. Just to make it simple, ministering to others resembles teaching, fighting, competing, and farming. That's his point. What is required of us as as ministers is similar to that which is required of a teacher or a soldier or a competitor or a farmer. Now, before we, we look at these four metaphors for ministry and see what God requires of us as, as ministers of Jesus Christ, let's look at the very important context here, because uh, lest we launch into this message and, and hear it again as one more thing that we need to do, and, and we try to crank ourselves up and ramp ourselves up in our own strength and our own wisdom, right? we want to avoid that, and so notice how the text helps us with that. In verse 1, he says, you therefore, my son, referring to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Therefore, he says, you therefore, my son, in light of all that I've said to you up to this point in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, that because of your sincere faith, your spiritual gift, the, the spirit of power and love and sound mind that God has given you, your glorious salvation, the sound words which have been entrusted to you to guard the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, the sterling example of Onesephorus who, who boldly and eagerly searched for me uh, until he found me. You too, Timothy, be strong. Hang tough. Don't run and hide. Don't back down. Don't wimp out. Play the man. (laughs) Sorry, I just thought of something. I wanted to share it. (laughs) When I thought of be strong, hang tough, I had the privilege one time of having, uh, we we had the Blakey's over to our house, and and, and so we were, we've saved some little kid toys for when little kids come over, right? Getting ready for the grandparent years. I know it's kind of scary to think about, but we're, we're closer to grandparents than we are to being parents kind of thing, right? So uh, anyway, so I was in the Jacob's bedroom and getting up into the closet where we put all these uh, toys up here, and, and I was going to get up there and pull some toys down for Charlie because Charlie was ready to play. And so as I was stepping up on this ladder and I put my head up, I banged my head on the, on the door 
sill thing. What is that thing called? Yeah, the doorway, I guess. Yeah, the thing across. I don't know. There's, there's a name for that. What is it called? The door frame. Thank you. That's what I was thinking. Okay, so I whacked my head on the thing, and I was like, oh. And the first thing that came out of Charlie's mouth was, be tough. <laughs> he said, be tough. And I thought, man, I know what he's getting from his dad when he hits his, hits his, his head on something or gets, he falls down and bumps his knee or something. He's getting from Billy, be tough. Come on, buddy, be tough. I just thought it was so cute, right? Be careful what we say, right? Because it's coming out of our kids' mouths. But that's essentially what, what Billy's telling his son, what Charlie told me that day, be tough. That's what he's telling, Paul's telling Timothy here is be tough. Be strong. And, and this is a, a present passive imperative. In other words, uh, Paul wasn't commanding him to be strong as much as he was saying to be strengthened, literally to keep on being strengthened. There's a big difference between being strong and being strengthened. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the point. Notice he says, you therefore, my son, be strong in, not yourself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy was not to be strong in and of himself. He was not to to grit his teeth and act tough like Rocky or Rambo. His strength was to come from the Lord. Christ is the source of of our strength. Divine strength is a gift from God that he graciously gives us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'll just stop here and say, listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if Christ is not in you, then you cannot do anything that this passage says to do. Because it's impossible to do in your own strength. But if you do know Jesus Christ and Christ is in you, then you can do all this stuff through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Kent Hughes comments in this way, quote, he says, nothing would come Timothy's way that he would not have the grace and strength to handle. No person, no pain, no problem, no responsibility, no tragedy. There would be no time when he could not stand tall. And that is true for all who are in Christ and thus under his grace. Hughes goes on, he says, if he calls you, if God calls you to do something, he will supply sufficient strength through his grace. If he calls you to step forward, he will give you the power. If he calls you to step up, he'll give you the fortitude. If he calls you to endure, the strength you need will be found in the strength that is in Christ Jesus. The question is, how do we receive that strength that Paul's talking about here? To endure and stay strong and to apply the, the, the commands that he's about to give us here? Well, I think it's very simple. We need, to, we need to forsake all confidence in our own strength, our own ability, our own wisdom, and ask God to give us his strength and rely on him rather than ourselves. And the only way we can remain strong is through prayerful dependence on God. You say, well, how does this transaction happen of me relinquishing, uh, you know, reliance on myself and, and receiving Christ's power? It happens through prayer. And when we pray, we are demonstrating our need of God, our reliance on God. And when we don't pray, we're demonstrating our reliance on our own strength. And this is so important that we understand verse 1 here, that we need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, because the kind of ministry that Paul is going to go on to describe here in verses 2 through 6 can only be accomplished with divine strength. No one could ever minister the way that Paul is about to tell us to minister in our own strength. The requirements of ministry are way too demanding. They're humanly impossible. And so we approach these verses with with humble dependence on the Lord. And so now with that as our foundation, let's look at the the requirements for ministry Paul sought to illustrate using these four metaphors. First of all, being a faithful, effective minister resembles being a teacher 
in that you're required to reproduce yourself. And I think the main idea here in verse 2 is discipleship. Discipleship. If you want to talk about what does ministry look like, it looks like discipleship. Notice what he says in verse 2. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The things which you've heard from me. That, that was a lot. He, heard, he had heard a lot. Timothy had heard a lot from the Apostle Paul. Traveling with Paul, ministering alongside, co-laboring with Paul, afforded Timothy the opportunity to have multiple conversations with him, to hear multiple sermons by him. And so Paul was commanding Timothy now to take all that he had learned from him and all those conversations and all those messages or sermons that he had heard, and he was to take all that and to pass it on to other people. He was to entrust, notice he says, entrust these to faithful men. That, that word entrust literally means to deposit for safekeeping. In other words, to, to keep the truth safe from distortion or extinction, Timothy was supposed to give it to the right kind of person. He wasn't supposed to just give it to just anybody. He had already told uh, Timothy in chapter 1, verse 11, he said, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So Paul says, I was a teacher, and now I'm telling you to be a teacher. Verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Timothy, I've entrusted to you this, this sacred treasure, and now it's your responsibility to take that sacred treasure and entrust it to someone else. But make sure you choose wisely in who you invest in. Notice he says, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You need to find people that are reliable, that are trustworthy, that are dependable, those that you can count on to take that sacred truth, to guard it, and to pass it on to someone else. Timothy had to have the confidence in that person that they wouldn't break the chain, if you will, that they would be able to teach others also. They, 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 in other words, they would be capable, they would be competent, they would be qualified to teach other people. Listen, I'm not about to go down to the mall in the woodlands and pull out my wallet and just look for the first guy standing around in the, you know, or walking past me, and I'm going to hand him my wallet and say, hey, would you hold this for me for a few minutes? I'm not with all the, I don't have any cash in there. My wife takes all my money. So, um, but, but I do have some credit cards and things in there that could get that, you know, provide that guy plenty. Of, I'm not just going to hand my wallet, my valuables to just any Joe on the street. You don't give someone, someone uh, something of great value uh, to keep it safe unless you can trust that person. And so Paul warned Timothy to make sure he passed on the truth to people who also would be faithful and able to pass it on others. He, he, didn't, want to waste, he didn't want him to waste time pouring his life into someone who, would, who wouldn't take what he learned and pour it into someone else's life. Notice Paul's commission here. To Timothy involves truth being passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. There's four generations here. Truth being passed from Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to faithful men, and from faithful men to others. It's kind of like a relay race, I guess, is the image that could come into our minds here. Is you got four runners, right, in that relay race, so and you got one baton, and the, the gun goes off, and the first guy takes off, and he's got to pass that baton. He's, he's, got, a, he's got a space uh, on, the, uh, on the course, on the track, when he's got a, that, that pass needs to be made, and if they, they drop that baton, what happens? They're done. They're disqualified. Race is over. And theoretically speaking, Christianity is always just one generation away from extinction. Do you ever think about that? I mean, that's a scary thought from a human perspective. We know that God's truth will remain forever. That's what he's ordained. But still, we have a responsibility. And, and, and if, if one generation fails to pass on the truth to the next generation, it will be lost. And that's the challenge that we feel as parents, is it not? Passing on the truth of the gospel to our children and, and hopefully to our grandchildren and then our great-grandchildren. 
And some of us are, are first-generation Christians. Others of us are second- or third-generation Christians. And, and unfortunately, sometimes you see something lost in the translation when you get to the, to the, to the second- or third-generation in your family. It, it, it's maybe, it may not always true, but oftentimes it's those second- or third-generation Christians that aren't as committed as the first-generation Christians. Have you noticed that? Now, if you're a second- or third-generation Christian, hey, I'm a second-generation Christian. My mom and dad were the first Christians in our family, and, and, and so I'm a second-generation Christian. You may be two, you may be third, fourth, fifth-generation Christian. Well, let's break the statistics, right? Let's not be the ones that drop the ball uh, or, or, or fail to make the pass. And so what Paul's saying is, hey, this is important that, that we need to be faithful to take what we've learned and teach it to others so that they can in turn teach it to others as well. This is what we call discipleship. Discipleship. This is a term we, we, we use all the time around here at Lakeside Bible Church. It's, it's simply the process of passing on what you've learned from someone to someone else who'll be faithful to teach others what they've learned from you. It's simply spiritual reproduction. It's pouring yourself into the life of someone else. And you say, well, where do I start? Well, it's really simple. Just find somebody who knows less than you, who's been walking with the Lord less than you, and start spending time with them and teaching them what you know about following Jesus. And at the same time, go find somebody that, that knows more than you, that's been walking with Christ longer than you, and ask them to disciple you. Ask them to teach you everything they know about following Christ. And you've heard me say this before, I think every one of us should have both a Paul and a Timothy in our lives. Somebody who's discipling us and someone that we're discipling. This is the chain, this is the model here of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And so the first requirement of a faithful, effective ministry is discipleship, is discipleship. This is a, a, the picture of a teacher. Secondly... Being a faithful, effective minister resembles being a soldier in that you're required to focus yourself. I think the idea here is dedication or devotion. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul goes on, he says, suffer hardship with me as a good, what? Soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says that Timothy should suffer hardship with him. This is the second time in this letter that Paul entreated Timothy to suffer alongside him. In verse 8, he said the same thing. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, excuse me, according to the power of God. He would say it again in chapter 4, verse 5. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul expected Timothy to, to be willing to bear evil treatment and affliction just like he had. I mean, Paul suffered unimaginable hardships for the cause of the gospel. Well, we don't have time to read it, but you can maybe just write down 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29, where he talks about all the things that he endured for the, for the sake of the gospel. And, and presently, when he was writing this letter, he was suffering the hardship of being in a dark, damp, underground prison cell, a Mamertine prison, awaiting to be executed by Nero. And so he calls Timothy to suffer with him, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul used military images throughout his, his letters, which is really a, a superb analogy of the Christian life. Probably the most notable is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, talking about our spiritual armor and in in, in likening the Christian life to spiritual warfare. But what Paul was emphasizing here uh, in this analogy was the dedication of a soldier that made him willing to put up with all sorts of hardship while staying completely focused on the duty at hand. I, you've, I'm sure, seen pictures of, of, of some of what our soldiers endure uh, who, are, who are serving overseas and protecting our freedom overseas. And some of the, their living conditions 
and, and some of the situations that they find themselves in, and, and sometimes it's, a, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable for them. There, there's tight quarters, maybe there's insufficient rations at times when they're on special missions, but guess what? They expect that. They stay focused. That's why? Because they're dedicated. Notice he says, no soldier in active service. I just like that term, active service. Listen, if you're in the military, you're going to work hard, right? There's no sitting on the side, just kicking back, relaxing, right? If you're in, in active service, my question to you this morning, is that true of you? Are you actively involved in serving the Lord? He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. In other words, a soldier in the line of duty who's, who's reported for duty, he doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. He doesn't allow himself to be distracted by worldly pursuits or become preoccupied with unimportant things. He ain't got no time for that. Listen, when a soldier is bunkered down in a foxhole and he's got bullets whizzing by his head and, and bombs going off all over the place, I guarantee you he's not playing fantasy football. Not that there's anything wrong with fantasy football. He's not trying to decide what screensaver would look best on his iPhone. He's not shopping online. He's not updating his Facebook status. Again, obviously, these are not inherently wrong to do any of these things. I know I just offended half the men in the church, right? And they just signed up for fantasy football, and they're all excited about their team, right? Nothing inherently wrong with these things, okay? But I think that our society spends an inordinate amount of time doing these types of trivial things. Wouldn't you agree? And we as Christians need to be careful not to get wrapped up in the things of the world. I don't hear me say, hey, if you're playing fantasy football, you're in sin. You know, that's a bad choice. You're being unwise with your time. I'm not saying that. I'm just giving as an example of something that we tend to get wrapped up in and, and things that are not bad in and of themselves, they tend to encumber us and entangle us, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, 1. Lay aside the, the encumbrances and the sins that so easily entangle us. There's things that are clearly sin and there's things that are just encumbrances. And if a soldier is told to pack up and head out to Afghanistan, there's going to be a few things he's going to leave behind. He's not going to try to pack it all with him because he'd be like dragging his tail, right, and pulling along all this stuff and his Xbox doesn't fit in his backpack and, you know, that's not happening. He's going to travel as light and as lean as possible. Now, there, there are some affairs of life. He says it doesn't entangle himself in the affairs of every life. Listen, there, there, there's some affairs of everyday life that we all have to focus on to some degree, right? We need to work. We need to go to school. We need to service our car. We need to mow our yard and fill out college applications and make wedding preparations and prepare our taxes and you fill in the blank. There's all these affairs of, this, of, of, of everyday life, right, that, that we all have to do, but we shouldn't allow ourselves to get more involved in these things than is absolutely necessary. I mean, Paul himself had a secular job. He, he made tents for a living to provide for his necessities. But he never allowed that to become the main focus of his existence. And I think too many of us, and I'm guilty of this, and I'm convicted to even say this, but too many of us sometimes are way too focused on what we eat and what we wear and where we live and what we drive. And, and if we're not careful, these things begin to take precedence over what really matters in life. And we allow these secondary pursuits to interfere with our primary duties and our priorities and, and serving Christ and ministering to others should be the main focus of our lives. What did Jesus say to the disciples in Matthew 6, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. I'll take care of what you wear. I'll take care of what you eat. I'll take care of where you live and what you drive and all those other things that we tend to worry about. I think what Paul was getting at here is that, that he wanted Timothy and he wanted us to cultivate a wartime mentality. 
This past summer, we had a chance, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, that we got to go to Washington, D.C., and we got to see a lot of the World War II uh, memorials and things like that and just uh, watch some D-Day, you know, IMAX thing. And it was just fascinating to see uh, during World War II how our entire nation was fixated in a good way on the war, That, that really nothing else mattered at the time. That, that everything became about the war. There was this wartime mentality that, that even companies that were making certain things stopped making those things so they could make things to support the war effort. Everything was about supporting the war effort. And so a soldier at war realizes the, the gravity of the situation and, and it causes them to be extremely focused. All they care about is staying alive, doing whatever the commanding officer says. Notice how Paul goes on. He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of every life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Effective service for Christ requires that we have only one focus, one purpose, and that is to be pleasing to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, I make it my ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. That should be, be every Christian's ultimate goal in life is to be pleasing to the one who enlisted him into the army. And so when we come before the Lord, hopefully on, a, on an every morning basis, we, we come into the presence of, of our great God and Savior and we're reporting for duty, sir. I'm here to serve you today. You, you, I'm here. You tell me what, I'm, what, what you want me to do, and I'll do it. And I'll do it to the best of my ability for your glory. And so the second essential requirement of faithful, effective ministry is dedication, like the dedication of a soldier. Thirdly, being effective, faithful minister resembles being a competitor in that you're required to control yourself. To control yourself, or you could use other words like regulate yourself or restrain yourself, but the main idea is discipline. When you think about an athlete, it's really synonymous with discipline. And so notice what he says in verse 5, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, see he's changing the picture here, going from a soldier to an athlete now, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The idea here, that that word compete, if anyone competes as an athlete, the idea is to contend, to struggle, to wrestle. And so being a winning athlete requires a a great deal of of, of struggle and discipline and self-control and self-denial. And oftentimes, you're contending more with yourself and your flesh than you are with your, your competition. Your greatest competition is yourself. And it's difficult to keep a regimented schedule of sleep and exercise and regulating what you, what you eat and what you drink as an athlete. It's all so important. And if you don't do those things, it says you won't win the prize. The Stephanos, the, not a medal here, but a trophy, uh, excuse me, but a laurel, laurel wreath, wreath is what they used for the prizes in those days. And you won't win if, unless you compete according to the rules. Every, every athletic event has its own set of rules and, and regulations and boundaries. And, and in, 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 in Paul's day, in order for an athlete to compete in the ancient Olympics or the Isthmian Games, which was second only to the Olympics, they had to meet certain qualifications. They had to, number one, be a true-born Greek. If you weren't a Greek, you couldn't compete. They, they also had to complete a 10-month training period, and then swear an oath in front of the statue of Zeus that they had done that, that they had trained for 10 months. And then they had to, of course, compete according to the rules of their particular event. And if they violated any of these rules, any of these regulations, they were disqualified from the competition. And of course, Paul uh, used this great analogy back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, probably his most classic um, use of this athletic analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises what? 
self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Listen, if you're a slave to your flesh, you'll never be an effective athlete. You'll never make it to the highest level of competition if you're a slave to your flesh and, and you, you keep eating like entire apple pies and half gallons of bluebell. It's coming, by the way. It's coming. You guys know, right? It's coming. We're going to have a bluebell party. But the point is, if, you, if you're a slave to your flesh, you'll, you'll never achieve the highest level of competition. Listen, if you're a slave to your flesh, you, you'll never be an effective minister. And we've all seen what happens even in our modern day athletics um, where people break the rules and they lose their title, they lose their reward, they lose, right, uh, they, they find out they were using performance enhancing drugs and guess what, you no longer are the greatest Tour de France winner ever in the history of mankind. Now you're despised, you go from being this hero to a zero, basically, right? Or you don't get to go to the Hall of Fame and things like that. Paul disciplined himself and practiced rigorous self-restraint in regards to his lusts, his passions, which resulted in him making it into the hall of faith. If we want to talk about hall of fame, the hall of faith, in fact, just look over a few uh, chapters to chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I love this, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. He's using some of the same analogies. Hey, listen, I've been a faithful soldier, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I was a a disciplined athlete, I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous dud, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Spurgeon said it this way, quote, he said, let every passion and habit be under our restraint. If we are not masters of ourselves, we're not fit to be leaders in the church. That's like, makes me want to just close in prayer. Let us have every passion and habit under our restraint. If we are not masters of ourselves, we're not fit to be leaders in the church. And so the third essential requirement of a faithful, effective minister is discipline. Mastering yourself is another way to say it. Well, there's a final picture here, and that is that being a faithful, effective minister resembles being a farmer in that you're required to exert yourself, to exert yourself, to work hard. And I think the idea here is diligence, diligence. Notice verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. It's almost assumed, right, it's that a farmer's hardworking. It's almost uh, humorous that Paul would actually say the hardworking farmer because who knows a farmer that's not hard, hard, hardworking? I mean, farmer and hard work are synonymous terms. You can't be a farmer and not work hard. And this word for hardworking there is the word kapiao, which means to work to the point of exhaustion. Work until you are spent, that you strain and sweat until every ounce of strength and stamina has been used up. You can't take another step. You can't lift another thing. You are completely wiped out. And there's no better example of a hard worker than a farmer or a rancher, maybe in this community. You wake up early, you go to bed late, day after day, you go about your monotonous routine from sunup to sundown, you plow the field, you plant the seed, you water the seed, you feed the cows, you milk the cows, you rotate the flocks, you mend the fence, you fix the tractor, and then you wake up and do it all over again, right? And it it doesn't seem very exciting or very rewarding, and sometimes you have to wait a long time before you ever see any results from your labor, And so all that to say, a lazy person looking for a life of ease and relaxation, you better not be a farmer. You're in the wrong line of work. Likewise, a lazy person will never be successful in ministry. 
Bruce Milne comments with these words. He said, the Christian pastor must be prepared to spend himself in Christ's service over a long period of time before he sees the fruits of his labor in people being converted, converted and Christians being built up. The service of Christ is no place for easygoing or self-serving people. Hopefully that doesn't qualify as a description for you, that you're a, a, an easygoing, self-serving person. Notice he says about farmers, they, they deserve to get rewarded for their, their hard work. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. The, the, all the hard, hard work of the farmer eventually pays off, and the reward for his diligence is getting the best pick of the crops before they're sent off to the market. So he takes what he needs to feed his family or to reinvest into the, to, to the crop, and, 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 and then he gives the rest away. And, and, and so what, what, is, what drives a farmer? It's, it's the hope of the harvest. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Some of you might be thinking this morning, hey, I've been, I've been faithful in ministry. I've been, I've been doing this ministry for years, and you know what? I, I'm, frankly, I'm a little worn out. I'm a little frustrated. I don't, I don't see much fruit. I don't see much results. Well, Paul says, hang in there. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. You're not wasting your time, in other words. It's a good work that you're doing. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. And we all have a tendency to lose heart. We all have a tendency to, to grow weary. Paul, or I should say God, knew that. And that's why he put verses like Galatians 6, 9 in the Bible. So that when we grow weary and when we lose heart, we can read verses like that that say, don't grow weary and don't lose heart. Hang in there. You're going to reap a harvest if you don't quit. And so the fourth essential requirement of a faithful, effective minister is diligence. Diligence. And so in order to be a strong, effective teacher, you must be discipling others. Uh, a strong, effective soldier, you must be dedicated. A strong, effective competitor, you must be disciplined. A strong and effective farmer, you must be diligent. And in order to be a strong, effective minister, you need to be all these things. You need to be all these things. It's a combination. You're multitasking. Ministry is multitasking. Because all at once, you're, being, you're, you're acting as a teacher, you're acting as a soldier, you're acting like a competitor, an athlete, you're acting like a farmer. Anybody feeling worn out yet? Tired out just by thinking about that? Whoa, that's a lot to think about. That's a lot to do. Well, that's why I said at the beginning that we can't do this in our own strength. We need to do it in the strength that comes through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God graciously grants us the ability to be these things and to do these things through Christ who strengthens us. Notice what Paul says in verse 7. He says, consider what I say, Timothy, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, Timothy, this will be a good place to pause in this letter and just to reflect on what I just said. Mold these pictures over in your mind a bit, meditate on them, and the Lord will give you understanding. He'll help you understand these metaphors for ministry and how they should motivate you to serve the Lord with greater zeal and devotion. And then again, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out one other critical piece of the context here. Notice the bookends here. Verse 1, we said, is so critical to understand. The foundation here is, is that we're doing all this in dependence on Christ and His strength. But notice verse 8. He simply says, remember Jesus Christ. You hear all this, Timothy? 
you read all this, Timothy, you meditate on all this, you mull this over in your mind, and, 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 and the Lord gives you understanding, and, 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 and you begin to get overwhelmed, and well, man, who, who is worthy of these things? Who's adequate for these things? Ah, this, this, this is too much for anyone. And so he just directs his focus where? Back to Christ. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the supreme model of a faithful teacher and a faithful soldier and a faithful competitor and a faithful farmer. He was all these things wrapped up into one. And so he's saying in order to apply what what I just got done teaching you, you need to simply follow the example of Jesus' life and ministry. Let me just make it simple for you, Timothy. If that was too much for you, let me just make it simple. Just remember Jesus Christ. Be like Jesus. Talk like Jesus. Act like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Minister to people like Jesus ministered to people. And so I hope that as we close this morning that no one is walking out of here feeling like they got their backpack filled with a bunch of rocks that they're going to walk out of here weighed down with more things to do, right? Oh, gee, thanks a lot for just giving me more responsibility. But you will go out of here skipping, as it were, feeling even lighter on your feet than you did when you came. Why? Because you're, you're just, you were reminded of Jesus Christ this morning. That's all that You were reminded of Jesus Christ. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he did for us so that we could do this for him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus and uh, how he is uh, our power uh, and he is also our example. Um, And so, Lord, as we think about the weightiness of this passage, that there is a lot of responsibility here for us. There's things for us to do here, things that that are required of us by you. But I pray that this would not overwhelm us or frustrate us, Lord, but it would cause us to rejoice because we, we, it's just, it just been an opportunity to go back to focus on Christ, who, who was all these things for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would walk out of here this morning with joy in our hearts, with a skip in our step, excited about a new season of ministry as we ramp up all of our our programs and things this next week, Lord, that we would just be excited and there would be a sense, a renewed sense of zeal and passion and and excitement for what you have in store for us as we minister to others and as others minister to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.